0: Chapter thirty four of the Small House at Arlington. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Small House at Arlington by Anthony Trollope. Chapter thirty four. The Combat. I have said that John Eames was at his office punctually at twelve but an incident had happened before his arrival there, very important in the annals which are now being told, so important that it is essentially necessary that it should be described with some minuteness of detail. Lord de Guest, in the various conversations which he had had with Ames as to Lily Dale and her present position, had always spoken of Crosby with the most vehement abhorrence. "'He a damned blackguard!' said the earl and the fire had come out of his round eyes as he spoke now the earl was by no means given to cursing and swearing in the sense which is ordinarily applied to these words when he made use of such a phrase as that quoted above it was to be presumed that he in some sort meant what he said and so he did and had intended to signify that crosbie by his conduct "'had merited all such condemnation as was the fitting punishment "'for blaggardism of the worst description. "'He ought to have his neck broken,' said Johnny. "'I don't know about that,' said the Earl. "'The present times have become so pretty-behaved "'that corporal punishment seems to have gone out of fashion. "'I shouldn't care so much about that "'if any other punishment had taken its place.' But it seems to me that a blackguard such as Crosby can escape now altogether unscathed. He hasn't escaped yet, said Johnny. Don't you go and put your finger in the pie and make a fool of yourself, said the Earl. If it had behoved one to resent in any violent fashion the evil done by Crosby, Bernard Dale, the Earl's nephew, should have been the avenger. This the Earl felt, but under these circumstances he was disposed to think "'that there should be no such violent vengeance.' "'Things were different when I was young,' he said to himself, "'but Ames gathered from the earl's tone "'that the earl's words were not strictly in accordance with his thoughts, "'and he declared to himself over and over again "'that Crosby had not yet escaped. "'He got into the train at Guestwick, taking a first-class ticket.' because the earl's groom in livery was in attendance upon him. Had he been alone, he would have gone in a cheaper carriage. Very weak in him, was it not? Little, also, and mean? My friend, can you say that you would not have done the same at his age? Are you quite sure that you would not do the same now that you are double his age? Be that as it may, Johnny Ames did that foolish thing, and gave the groom in livery half a crown into the bargain. We shall have you down again soon, Mr. John, said the groom, who seemed to understand that Mr. Ames was to be made quite at home at the manor. He went fast asleep in the carriage, and did not awake till the train was stopped at the Barchester junction. Waiting for the up-train from Barchester, sir, said the guard, they're always late. Then he went to sleep again, "'and was aroused in a few minutes by someone entering the carriage in a great hurry. "'The branch train had come in, just as the guardians of the line then present "'had made up their minds that the passengers on the main line "'should not be kept waiting any longer. "'The transfer of men, women, and luggage was therefore made in great haste, "'and they who were now taking their new seats had hardly time to look about them.' An old gentleman very red about the gills, first came into Johnny's carriage, which up to that moment he had shared with an old lady. The old gentleman was abusing everybody because he was hurried, and would not take himself well into the compartment, but stuck in the doorway, standing on the step. "'Now, sir, when you're quite at leisure,' said a voice behind the old man, which instantly made Ames start up in his seat." i'm not at all at leisure said the old man and i'm not going to break my legs if i know it take your time sir said the guard so i mean said the old man seating himself in the corner nearest to the open door opposite to the old lady then Ames saw plainly that it was crosbie who had first spoken and that he was getting into the carriage crosbie at the first glance saw no one but the old gentleman and the old lady and he immediately made for the unoccupied corner seat. He was busy with his umbrella and his dressing-bag, and a little flustered by the pushing and hurrying. The carriage was actually in motion before he perceived that John Ames was opposite to him. Ames had instinctively drawn up his legs so as not to touch him. He felt that he had become very red in the face, and, to tell the truth, the perspiration had broken out upon his brow. It was a great occasion, great in its imminent trouble, and great in its opportunity for action. How was he to carry himself at the first moment of his recognition by his enemy? And what was he to do afterwards? It need hardly be explained that Crosby had also been spending his Christmas with a certain Earl of his acquaintance and that he too was returning to his office. In one respect he had been much more fortunate than poor Ames, for he had been made happy with the smiles of his lady-love. Alexandrina, and the Countess, had fluttered about him softly, treating him as a tame chattel, now belonging to the noble house of de Courcy, and in this way he had been initiated into the inner domesticities of that illustrious family. The two extra men-servants, hired to wait upon Lady Dumbello, had vanished. The champagne had ceased to flow in a perennial stream. Lady Rosina had come out from her solitude, and had preached at him constantly. Lady Margareta had given him some lessons in economy. The Honourable John, in spite of a late quarrel, had borrowed five pounds from him. The Honourable George had engaged to come and stay with his sister during the next May. The Earl had used a father-in-law's privilege, and had called him a fool. Lady Alexandrina had told him more than once, in rather a tart voice, that this must be done, and that that must be done, and the Countess had given him her orders as though it was his duty in the course of nature to obey every word that fell from her. Such had been his Christmas delights, and now, as he returned back from the enjoyment of them, he found himself confronted in the railway carriage with Johnny Ames. The eyes of the two met, and Crosby made a slight inclination of the head. To this Ames gave no acknowledgement whatever, but looked straight into the other's face. Crosby immediately saw that they were not to know each other, and was well contented that it should be so. Among all his many troubles, the enmity of John Ames did not go for much. He showed no appearance of being disconcerted, though our friend had shown much. He opened his bag, and, taking out a book, was soon deeply engaged in it, pursuing his studies as though the man opposite was quite unknown to him. I will not say that his mind did not run away from his book, for indeed there were many things of which he found it impossible not to think, but it did not revert to John Ames. Indeed, when the carriages reached Paddington, he had in truth all but forgotten him, and as he stepped out of the carriage with his bag in his hand, was quite free from any remotest trouble on his account. But it had not been so with Ames himself. Every moment of the journey had— for him being crowded with thought as to what he would do now that chance had brought his enemy within his reach. He had been made quite wretched by the intensity of his thinking, and yet, when the carriages stopped, he had not made up his mind. His face had been covered with perspiration ever since Crosby had come across him, and his limbs had hardly been under his own command. Here had come to him a great opportunity, and he felt so little confidence in himself that he almost knew that he would not use it properly. Twice and thrice he had almost thrown at Crosbie's throat in the carriage, but he was restrained by an idea that the world and the police would be against him if he did such a thing in the presence of that old lady. But when Crosby turned his back upon him and walked out, it was absolutely necessary that he should do something. He was not going to let the man escape— "'after all that he had said as to the expediency of thrashing him. "'Any other disgrace would be preferable to that. "'Fearing, therefore, lest his enemy should be too quick for him, "'he hurried out after him, "'and only just gave Crosby time to turn round and face the carriages "'before he was upon him. "'You confounded scoundrel!' he screamed out. "'You confounded scoundrel!' "'and seized him by the throat.' "'throwing himself upon him, "'and almost devouring him by the fury of his eyes. "'The crowd upon the platform was not very dense, "'but there were quite enough of people "'to make a very respectable audience for this little play. "'Crosby, in his dismay, retreated a step or two, "'and his retreat was much accelerated "'by the weight of Ames's attack. "'He endeavoured to free his throat from his foe's grasp, "'but in that he failed entirely.' For the minute, however, he did manage to escape any positive blow, owing his safety in that respect rather to Ames's awkwardness than to his own efforts, something about the police he was just able to utter, and there was, as a matter of course, an immediate call for a supply of those functionaries. In about three minutes three policemen, assisted by six porters, had captured our poor friend Johnny, but this had not been done quick enough for Crosby's purposes. The bystanders, taken by surprise, had allowed the combatants to fall back upon Mr. Smith's bookstall, and there Ames laid his foe prostrate among the newspapers, falling himself into the yellow shilling novel depot by the over fury of his own energy. But as he fell. He contrived to lodge one blow with his fist in Crosby's right eye, one telling blow, and Crosby had, to all intents and purposes, been thrashed. "'Confounded scoundrel! Rascal! blackguard! shouted Johnny with what remnants of voice were left to him, as the police dragged him off. "'If you only knew what he's done!' But in the meantime, the policeman held him fast. As a matter of course, the first burst of public sympathy went with Crosby. He had been assaulted, and the assault had come from Ames. In the British bosom there is so firm a love of well-constituted order that these facts alone were sufficient to bring twenty knights to the assistance of the three policemen and the six porters, so that for Ames, even had he desired it, There was no possible chance of escape, but he did not desire it. One only sorrow consumed him at present. He had, as he felt, attacked Grosby, but had attacked him in vain. He had had his opportunity and had misused it. He was perfectly unconscious of that happy blow, and was in absolute ignorance of the great fact that his enemy's eye was already swollen and closed, and that in another hour it would be as black as his hat he is a confounded rascal ejaculated Ames, as the policeman and porters hauled him about you don't know what he's done no we don't said the senior constable but we know what you have done i say bushes, where's that gentleman he'd better come along with us Crosby had been picked up from among the newspapers by another policeman and two or three other porters, and was attended also by the guard of the train who knew him, and knew that he had come up from Courcy Castle. Three or four hangers-on were standing also around him, together with a benevolent medical man who was proposing to him an immediate application of leeches. If he could have done as he wished, he would have gone his way quietly, allowing Ames to do the same. A great evil had befallen him, "'but he could in no way mitigate that evil "'by taking the law of the man who had attacked him. "'To have the thing as little talked about as possible "'should be his endeavour. "'What, though, he should have Ames locked up and fined "'and scolded by a police magistrate, "'that would not in any degree lessen his calamity. "'If he could have parried the attack "'and got the better of his foe, "'if he could have administered the black iron instead of receiving it, Then, indeed, he could have laughed the matter off at his club, and his original crime would have been somewhat glozed over by his success in arms. But such good fortune had not been his. He was forced, however, on the moment, to decide as to what he would do. "'We have got him here in custody, sir,' said Bushes, touching his hat. It had become known from the guard that Crosby was somewhat of a big man a frequent guest at Courcy Castle, and of repute and station in the higher regions of the metropolitan world. The magistrates will be sitting at Paddington now, sir, or will be by the time we get there. By this time, some mighty railway authority had come upon the scene and made himself cognizant of the facts of the row, a stern official who seemed to carry the weight of many engines on his brow one at the very sight of whom smokers would drop their cigars, and porters close their fists against sixpences. A great man with an erect chin, a quick step and a well-brushed hat, powerful, with an elaborately upturned brim. This was the platform superintendent, dominant even over the policemen. Step into my room, Mr. Crosby, he said. Stubbs? "'Bring that man in with you.' And then, before Crosby had been able to make up his mind as to any other line of conduct, he found himself in the superintendent's room, accompanied by the guard and by the two policemen who conducted Johnny Ames between them. "'What's all this?' said the superintendent, still keeping on his hat, for he was aware how much of the excellence of his personal dignity. "'was owing to the arrangement of that article, "'and as he spoke he frowned upon the culprit "'with his utmost severity. "'Mr. Crosby, I am very sorry "'that you should have been exposed to such brutality "'on our platform.' "'You don't know what he has done,' said Johnny. "'He is the most confounded scoundrel living. "'He has broken.' "'But then he stopped himself.' He was going to tell the superintendent that the confounded scoundrel had broken a beautiful young lady's heart, but he bethought himself that he would not allude more specially to Lily Dale in that hearing. "'Do you know who he is, Mr. Crosby?' said the superintendent. "'Oh, yes,' said Crosby, whose eye was already becoming blue. "'He is a clerk in the income-tax office, and his name is Ames. "'I believe you had better leave him to me.' But the superintendent at once wrote down the words, Income Tax Office Ames, on his tablet. "'We can't allow a row like that to take place on our platform and not notice it. I shall bring it before the directors. It is a most disgraceful affair, Mr. Ames, most disgraceful.' But Johnny, by this time, had perceived that Crosby's eye was in a state which proved satisfactorily that his morning's work had not been thrown away and his spirits were rising accordingly. He did not care two straws for the superintendent, or even for the policeman, if only the story could be made to tell well for himself hereafter. It was his object to have thrashed Crosby, and now, as he looked at his enemy's face, he acknowledged that providence had been good to him. "'That's your opinion,' said Johnny. "'Yes, sir, it is,' said the superintendent.' and I shall know how to represent the matter to your superiors, young man. You don't know all about it, said Ames, and I don't suppose you ever will. I had made up my mind what I'd do the first time I saw that scoundrel there, and now I've done it. It would have got much worse in the railway carriage, only there was a lady there. Mr. Crosby, I really think we had better take him before the magistrates. To this, however, Crosby objected assured the superintendent that he would himself know how to deal with the matter, which, however, was exactly what he did not know. Would the superintendent allow one of the railway servants to get a cab for him, and to find his luggage? He was very anxious to get home without being subjected to any more of Mr. Ames's insolence. You haven't done with Mr. Ames's insolence yet, I can tell you. All London shall hear of it and shall know why. If you have any shame in you, you shall be ashamed to show your face. Unfortunate man! Who can say that punishment, adequate punishment, had not overtaken him? For the present he had to sneak home with a black eye, with the knowledge inside him that he had been whipped by a clerk in the income tax office, and for the future, "'he was bound over to marry Lady Alexandrina de Courcy. "'He got himself smuggled off in a cab, "'without being forced to go again upon the platform, "'his luggage being brought to him by two assiduous porters. "'But in all this was very little balm for his hurt pride. "'As he ordered the cabman to drive to Mount Street, "'he felt that he had ruined himself by that step in life "'which he had taken at Courcy Castle.' Whichever way he looked, he had no comfort. Damn the fellow, he said, almost out loud in the cab. But though he did with his outward voice allude to Ames, the curse in his inner thoughts was uttered against himself. Johnny was allowed to make his way down to the platform and there find his own carpet bag. One young porter, however, came up and fraternised with him. You gov it him tidy just at the last moment, sir, but law, sir, you should a let out a timid fust. What's the use of clawing a man's neck collar? It was then a quarter past eleven, but nevertheless Ames appeared at his office precisely at twelve. End of chapter thirty four Recording by Felicity Campbell Whanganui, Book one for me dot org, New Zealand.